the Saudis and the Emirates are carrying out serious violations of international law, possibly war crimes, bombing schools, bombing hospitals, bombing refugee camps. Um, about half the Saudi Air Force, I think, is made up of British-made planes. And they're dropping British-made bombs and they're being flown by British-trained pilots. So there's a, a series of measures that are um, paid for by the taxpayer in which the state supports arms industry. The companies and the government are basically working hand in glove at arms fairs. Hello and welcome to the first ever Campaign Against Arms Trade podcast. Uh, my name is Andrew Smith. We're going to be producing a new podcast every month with a different host every month. And the idea of the podcast is going to be to discuss a lot of the issues to do with campaigning, to do with the arms trade and to do with the UK's role in it. Um, today's podcast is going to be a bit of an introduction. So first of all, we've got, we're going to be joined by David Waring, who is a Middle East analyst who's uh, just finished a PhD at the School of Oriental and African Studies and he's on the steering committee for CAT. He's going to give us a bit of an introduction to the arms trade, how it works, what the UK sells, who it sells to and things like that. And then we're also going to be joined by Anna Stavanakis, who is a senior lecturer in international relations at the University of Sussex. She's going to talk to us a bit about the government's role, the role that government ministers play, the role that civil servants play, because none of this would be po- none of the arms trade would be possible without the full support of government. Over the months ahead, we're going to be talking to a lot of different activists from a lot of different backgrounds who are going to talk about different struggles that are happening um, both in the UK and in their countries as well. Um, and we're going to be going into some real detail about some of the other issues which are linked into the arms trade and militarisation. So first, let's hear from David Waring. I mean, the main kind of weapon system that Britain sells, if you're talking about Saudi Arabia, which is Britain's major arms customer, it's fighter jets, it's military jets, um, the Tornado, and now what's called the Eurofighter Typhoon. And these are combat aircraft which can carry out um, bombing runs as well as air-to-air combat. But um, Saudi Arabia is obviously the largest buyer, but where's the UK selling its weapons? Who's buying British weapons right now? Increasingly, if you look at the period after the end of the Cold War, what you find is that the value of weapons sales going to the rest of the world is gradually increasing. That's the kind of linear trend from 1991 until now. And the value of arms going to the Gulf states, and this principally means Saudi, is gradually going up to the point where it's now about half and half. It's like half to the Gulf states, half to the rest of the world. And I think those trends look like they're likely to continue. So Saudi is the most important customer because within the Gulf market, it's the one that buys most of our weapons. We also have a fair, fairly large share in the Omani market, but it's not lucrative. Um, other places, Britain sells arms. The, the US, believe it or not, um, the US is obviously some major exporter itself, but Britain sells into that military industry, contributes various um, high-tech stuff. And uh, it, India is another big, big importer. Um, but yeah, I mean, the Gulf, the Gulf market is a really significant one. The Saudi market is a really, really, really significant one within that. Has it changed over much <coughs> over the years insofar as other countries the UK once did sell lots of weapons to who it now doesn't, yeah. or ones where the UK never used to sell weapons at all and is now selling a lot? Yeah, I mean, it's really linked to... This is not just economics, right? This is, um, you know, government strategic policy, foreign policy and all the rest of it. So... So take Iran, 
we were selling large quantities of arms to Iran when the Shah was the, was in charge of Iran. He was our ally, this um, sort of autocratic monarch who was there um, well, well, for the 20th century, him and his dad before him. And then he was overthrown in 1979, so we now have the Islamic Republic of Iran, which is not in any way aligned to the West. And so British arms sales to Iran are suddenly cut short at that point. And it's not because Iran suddenly run out of money, it's because we no longer want, no longer want to arm that regime because it's, it's run by something we don't like. Libya was, um, it was an arms market when it was a Western ally, then it became... You know, then Gaddafi um, is in charge of Libya and suddenly it's not a Western arms market. Then he reconciles with the West and it is a Western arms market. So you can see how these things, you know, they, they, yeah, it's more about foreign policy. It's more about British strategic policy than it is about just making money and nothing else. Yeah. But our government would say that the countries it sells to are sovereign regimes who have a right to self-defence. And this is the sort of thing that, sh- that does come up a lot. Um, how would you respond to that? It's a bit of a platitude. I mean, yeah, every sovereign state has a right to self-defence if you want to look at it in those kind of realist international relations terms. But then, OK, why don't we still sell arms to Iran? You know, why don't we, st- why don't we sell arms to North Korea? Um, and the reason we do don't sell arms to those regimes is because they're our opponents. You know, we sell arms to our allies because we want to support our allies, not because they have some abstract right to self-defence, but because we concretely want these regimes to to survive. And also, I think the other thing to point out is that the way these arms are often used has nothing to do with self-defence at all. I mean, you look at the Saudis' war in Yemen at the moment, they will claim that it's self-defence. It, it isn't. It's about ensuring that an ally of the Saudi government reclaims the presidential um, throne, as it were, that he was thrown off of a couple of years ago. That's not about self-defence, that's about geopolitics. Um, And you look at some of the arms that we sell to these Gulf regimes that are really capable of being used in internal repression, which is against the arms export controls, by the way, you're not supposed to do that. Mm. Um, But again, that's about defending the regime from its public so it's a kind of self-defence, but, I mean, if we care about what are called British values, then maybe those are not the kind of arms we mm. should be selling, and it's not the kind of, quote-unquote, self-defence that we should be, you know, protecting. But how long has the UK been <coughs> such a major arms supplier? In fact, as we are talking today, mm. um, the government's just published stats that show that the UK is actually still the second-largest arms export from the world. Right. over the last 10-year period. But has this always been the case? Has it? How long has the UK been involved in this? I mean, I think things change in the late 20th century where Britain's going through this process of decolonisation and it's trying to maintain relationships with regimes that it's leaving behind as it were, as it's pulling out itself. It wants to ensure that the regimes, allied regimes that it leaves behind are sufficiently well-armed, able to you know, capable of defending themselves from their populations and capable of, you know, maintaining the sort of regional order, world global order that Britain and America want. So when Britain pulls out of the Gulf in, the, in 1971, when it used to patrol the Persian Gulf and protect the oil there, protect, quote-unquote, um, when it pulled out, it started arming, or British and Americans started arming Iran and Saudi a bit more at that point. So it's really, I guess, in the 60s where Britain sees an opportunity to make, um, to make money from the fact that it's already got a domestic arms industry, arms exports can help it to earn revenue. It also helps um, 
you know, you need a you need a domestic arms industry to support your ability to maintain yourself as a global military power, right? And it makes it more economical to do that if you're selling some of the arms that you're making for yourself. It means that you can extend production runs and lower unit costs, you can retain skills, all that kind of thing. And another big opportunity comes in the early 70s when the Gulf states start really coining it in from oil, from oil sales. They take control of their own oil industry, suddenly they're flush with cash, and Britain and America really want to recycle that money into their own economies. And that goes into the um, financial industry, but it also goes into the arms industry. So I think in earnest, this, take, this, this goes back to the 60s and 70s. And it's all, you know, if you look at the way it's developed, it's tied into our relationship, particularly with, with the Gulf states and Saudi. Well, the relationship with the Gulf states has recently been the subject of a high-profile court case. Yeah involving CAT? So for the last um, two and a bit years, the, Sa- the, the Saudis and the coalition of their allies, I mean, it's principally the UAE, um, have intervened in a war in Yemen, a civil war in Yemen that started a little bit earlier. And as I say, they're backing the, the government of that country against rebels. And the war they've been waging has been pretty brutal. There's been, you know, if you look at all the reports, all the reporting that's done by the leading NGOs, Amnesty, Human Rights Watch, by the humanitarian NGOs, Oxfam, Save the Children, by reporters on the ground, they all tell you the same thing, that the Saudis and the Emirates <coughs> are carrying out serious violations of international law, possibly war crimes, bombing schools, bombing hospitals, bombing refugee camps, um, internally displaced persons camps, sorry. Um, homes, um, residential areas, and all the rest of it. And as I mentioned before, Saudi is one of Britain's major arms um, arms markets. So a lot of these planes that are running these bombing missions are British made. Um, about half the Saudi Air Force, I think, is made up of British made planes. And they're dropping British made bombs and they're being flying by British trained pilots. Now, the controls, the arms controls that we have, the arms control regime that we have in Britain, says that you can't sell arms to a regime if there's a clear, if there's a quote, clear risk, unquote, that the arms, quote, might be used in serious violation of international law. And I think it seems to us that it's not just a risk, it seems very likely. Certainly, the other day I spoke to a journalist who'd been on the ground during the war or for a long period of time, and they said to me, it's virtually certain that British arms have been used in violation of international law. So we believed that that quite low bar in the law had been exceeded by some degree. So we applied um, to the High Court for a judicial review. So British law, if the government makes a decision that a party believes is irrational or unlawful, then you can challenge it for the court. So we asked the court, could you challenge, could you, could you look into this decision, the decision to carry an army Saudi in the context of the war? And court um, finally heard that in February uh, this year, gave their verdict a few, um, couple of weeks ago, and they said that the government hadn't made its decision in an, in an unlawful way, that it's done what it could to establish that the risk didn't exist. Um, that, 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 that clear risk of those arms being used in violation of international law wasn't actually a clear risk. We disagree, I think it's safe to say, mm. very strongly. And so we are asking for permission to appeal the decision. Um, we don't think the decision is a logical one. We think it flies in the face of the evidence. You know, we go back to that point. Is there a clear risk? It's not, has it been proved that the arms have definitely been used in violations of, in violation of international law? It's simply, is the risk clear that they might be? 
as if uh, finally, if the judgment is upheld, mm. what sort of precedent do you think it will set? That's what a terrible kind precedent. of message will it send to Saudi Arabia, to the arms companies, and to people in Yemen? Yeah. But also to other dictatorships. I think they will be very reassured. Any government, any regime like Saudi, which buys British arms and is thinking of carrying out indiscriminate bombing, which is de- which appears to be designed to terrorise civilians, um, will take huge comfort from a decision like that because it will effectively say the British government has carte blanche to help you do this. You know, there isn't a legal impediment to it. Um, I mean, given all the evidence that's available on what's happening in Yemen at the moment. If you can legally sell arms, if Britain, the British state can legally facilitate the sale of arms to a regime doing those things in this context, then it can sell arms anywhere. You can sell arms to Bashar al-Assad, sell arms to whoever you like. So it's a deeply worrying precedent, and I think without wanting to preempt anything, if the judgment is upheld, I suspect the route cat will start taking is these controls are just are just worthless. It's not even a question of, are we meeting the standards set by the controls? The controls are obviously worthless. You have to think about how to replace them with something completely different. I know we're not massively mm. keen on the controls as it is, but the emphasis would really turn to that, I think, if the judgment was upheld. Well, I think, feel like we should end on something positive. What was that kind <laughs> of positive note on this? The public agrees with us, don't yes, they? Yes, they do, yeah. yeah. I mean, if you look at public opinion... Um, on arming Saudi, it's two to, I think it's two to one against. Um, yeah, there's a boost. And I think what, what I took heart from after the court decision was the fact that my worry was the court would make its decision and people would just defer to it. In fact, I think when you look at the coverage and look at the response, you see that people are baffled by the judgment rather than... Um, rather than taking it as being the last word on the subject. Because it's, 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 let's say it's highly counterintuitive, let's put it that way. And I think people understand that. So that's encouraging. The fact that there's this latent public support for our opinion, for our view, is encouraging. We need to turn that two-thirds of the public who are against this into two-thirds of the public, or a large chunk of the public, who are active in opposing this sort of thing. David's right, if we're going to end the arms trade, we need to mobilise that public opinion. And so public opinion is already on our side. What we need to do is mobilise it further. If you want to get involved in a campaign against arms trade and our local actions and our national campaigns, then visit our website, first of all, which is caat.org.uk. From there, you can find out details about all of our different local groups up and down the country and about the national campaigns. If you'd like to get involved in opposition to the DSEI Arms Fair, which is taking place in East London um, later this year, then visit the Stop the Arms Fair website and find out what's happening there. That's stopthearmsfair.org.uk. There you can find out details about all the protests that are planned for every day of the week leading up to the arms fair and what will be happening during it. The movement can only be as good and as strong as the people who are taking part in it. So the more of you that are playing a role, the better the actions and the more impact we can have. Well, our first guest, David, talked a lot about the about the very basics of the arms trade and how it works, but. We're now going to hear more about the role the government plays in it. We're joined by Anna Stavanakis, who is a senior lecturer in international relations at the University of Sussex, is going to tell us a lot more about that. So there's a variety of ways in which the government supports arms companies, uh, economic, political, diplomatic and so on. 
And part of that uh, involves uh, government support for research and development costs. Now, that's the sort of thing that you might say, well, actually, national defence is a public good, and so it's right that the state should play some sort of role in that. You might think of it in a way similar to health or education and so on. You might, however, also be quite critical of the way in which the government thinks about defence and security, and that actually it's promoting... um, Uh, quite heavily militarised responses to conflict. So even if you were to believe in this idea of a public good of national defence, you might be quite critical of the way that's interpreted. The other, one of the other interesting angles is the relationship between um, the the Department for International Trade and companies, because you have the the government paying some of the uh, costs of industry, but all the profit is being appropriated privately. So that might be one of the other lines of objection. But in terms of sort of actual practical lines of government support, there are a range. So there's things like um, the uh, Defence and Security Organisation, which is situated within um, the Department for International Trade, which basically tries to help companies export their goods. So it provides PR and media support, networking support, but also serving military personnel are delegated to help the companies um, sell their wares. There's also the use of defence attaches, there's use of official visits, so the royal family play a really big role in this. Um, Politicians play a really big role in going abroad on trade visits, which includes usually a a heavy arms company component. And then also things like export credit guarantees, which are basically insurance against arms uh, clients defaulting. So there's a a series of measures that are um, paid for by the taxpayer in which the state supports arms industry. So government is directly promoting an industry it's meant to be regulating. And yes. when this conflict comes up, how do does government ever come down on the side of stricter regulation? Do you think the arms trade has a greater influence? So the, the, the government is absolutely in this position of both promoting and regulating arms exports. And quite often what you see um, is a case of does the left hand know what the right hand is doing? So we have controversies that, you know, there, there, are, there are lots going back decades. There was the um, controversy over the sale of an air traffic control system to, to Tanzania, in which you had Claire Short and Diffid uh, and the Treasury arguing against it on development and economic grounds, but you had the MOD arguing in favour of it. There are a series of examples like that where you have one part of government saying we shouldn't be exporting, but other parts of government saying we should. Whilst there is that contestation within government, it's usually the pro-export side that wins because they are the more powerful elements um, within the state. Well, this September, we're going to see East London hosting the uh, DSEI Arms Fair. And of course, government plays a role in that as well, doesn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. The uh, Defence and Security Organisation, which is part of the (coughs) Department for International Trade, is the one who invites the foreign delegations. Um, So there is an official state stamp of approval on whoever is invited to attend that affair. There's also um, DSO support in terms of providing military personnel for demonstrating the equipment, um, PR and media support. The companies and the government are basically working hand in glove at arms fairs. Well, I suppose a question is how high does this go? Is this, um, will, would Theresa May be involved in promoting arms exports when she's abroad? Is it something prime ministers get involved in? It's, yes, yes, it has been. And it's, I, I would say this goes, um, this is threaded through uh, all, all levels of government. When you get um, delegations going abroad, whoever the minister is, perhaps the Secretary of State, that there's a sense in which 
um, arms exports are part of the British package. So if you were to design security policy, how, how, would you, uh, how do you think the UK should be acting on the world stage? What could, we, could it be doing differently? I think one of the, one of the biggest issues uh, for UK foreign policy and security and defence policy is the, is, the, is the question of contradictions and of hypocrisy. Because at the moment, even those in government always try to take the moral high ground and they try to say that we have the most one of the most rigorous arms export control regimes in the world. We are a force for good in the world. That stands in glaring contradiction to their arms export policies quite often. And I think that is a problem for British foreign policy, not least because it gives other countries who they then seek to be critical of a means to say, well, that's just politically motivated criticism. So I think it doesn't help Britain's standing in the world to have this gap between what it says and what it is seen to do. We've seen strong opposition in particular to arms exports to Saudi Arabia from Ed Jeremy Corbyn, from the SNP, and also from the Liberal Democrats as well. Is this the sort of thing everyone says in opposition, or does it feel like it's actually potentially changing? I think it's a bit of both. There is a British tradition of supporting and promoting arms exports, whether it's a Labour government or a Conservative government. Um, The Labour manifesto is quite interesting in simultaneously claiming that they will stop arms exports to repressive regimes and, on the other hand, wanting to support and promote British industry. There's a a very uh, situation that is quite particular to Britain, given uh, in terms of uh, changes that were made to manufacturing industry in the 1980s under the Thatcher government, to the point where aerospace industry in particular is seen as the champion of British manufacturing and that if we are to export our way out of austerity we must promote arms exports. There is a superficial truth to some of that in the context of deliberate active government decisions to wind down other forms of manufacturing and promote arms exports. So these are always political decisions and that could change but it requires political will to do so. I think there's more scope for that under a Labour government but the question of the relationship between the Labour Party and the trade unions and peace activists I think is a very interesting one. Well, I think that brings me on nice actually to my last question which is that one thing we always hear a lot about is that kind of question of what about jobs. And of course, there's going to be some parts of the country where arms um, where arms companies are major employers. They might not be on a national scale, but they could be to specific towns, to specific regions. What would you like to see government doing instead? I think it would be really important for government to have a geographically varied plan of action, because you're absolutely right. Arms manufacturing is economically significant in some parts of the country, but not not nationally in terms of the whole economy. So there will be parts of the country that need active government intervention, uh, uh, conversion plans to create alternatives. It also then requ- uh, means you know we need different sorts of emphasis on what types of engineering are students doing at university, what types of skills are students b- being taught at school. Again, it's a question of political choices and political will. So the government does play a key role in the arms trade, but why do you think it's, what do you think's in it for the government? I think it's a mix of a couple of different things. One is, let's call it geopolitical. It's an interest in Britain being taken seriously on the world stage. Uh, this idea of Britain punching above its weight for a small island nation. It's bound up with very particular ideas um, of uh, a kind of post-imperial Britain. That, uh, inv- that relies on close relationships with um, regimes in the Middle East, 
uh, and a pivotal role in NATO. So there's, I think there's a set of kind of diplomatic, political, geopolitical interests that go beyond the direct economic interests and arguments, which I think are also very strong because of things like the revolving door and the close relationship between industry and government. The government sees its interests as the, as pretty much the same as industry's interests. And I think that's that confusion between what's in the interests of the country as a whole and what's in the interests of industry is part of the problem. But I think I don't think you can explain it solely through the economic arguments, but I think it's a combination of that with these more geopolitical ones. As mentioned earlier, for Defence and Security Equipment International Arms Fair, which is taking place in East London, is going to be the next big event in the arms trade calendar. It's going to bring some of the most brutal dictatorships in the world together with most of the biggest arms companies in the world in a government-supported event at the XL Centre in London. We are going to be there to try and shut it down and to stop it for good. Um, you can find out details on the Stop the Arms Fair website, which is stoptheArmsFair.org.uk, where you can find out about what's happening and how you can get involved. In our next podcast, we'll be going into more detail about the plans, about what's coming up, and about the kind of actions that people that you can all get involved in. We'd urge you all to get involved because... If we're, not, if we're going to stop uh, the arms trade, we need to mobilise as many people as we can. We need to mobilise as much of public opinion as we can. And it's only through working together that we can win. In next month's podcast, we're going to be talking to a lot of the other groups who are going to be involved in mobilising against the DSEI arms fair. We're going to be talking about solidarity, about how we can work together. Thank you so much for listening. And if you want to get involved, then please visit our website, cat.org.uk, and find out about how you can get involved and how you can take action. Also, please subscribe to our podcast. This, I say this is the first podcast we've ever done, and we hope it's going to be the first of many. And please do give us five stars on iTunes. That would be of great help as well. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>